don't want a big ol' I just want to ride on my motorcycle Hello and welcome to the Nokomoto Podcast. This is episode number 168. I'm your host, MotoGP, and with me is your other host, Swiggy. Yo. And returning for our fifth, sixth appearance, we've got Dr. Mike Action in the house. Coming to you from my living room again. And let's see here. You know what? Let's do... um, Let's do an imitation of uh, Cleveland Moto here. What are we? What are we drinking? We've got some Irish whiskey called Proper What? Proper Twelve. Proper Twelve, and it is properly ordinary. We got some tea out and some Michelob Ultras, and we're doing just fine. Um, keeping with our our uh, ripping off of Cleveland Moto theme, who rode here tonight? That would be Mike Action. All right, and what did you ride? I rode my Buell Ulysses. Aha, uh-huh, which is finally fucking fixed, <laughs> right? It only took me a year and a half, but yeah. So, so you l- l- that l- seems l- about the right schedule for us these days, <laughs> right? So, so you have a Buell Ulysses with no current problems. That's right. So, one of the rear view mirrors is still broken. So, when are you going to sell it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. How quickly do you, uh, should we be taking bets on how? Like, what's the over on under on it developing another problem? Right? Oh, pretty high. Yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. And Swigs, you were gonna ride the scoot, but what was wrong with your scooter? I don't know. It just it for the first time because normally I've been like because I've been riding other things and driving and doing all sorts of. And also just kind of generally not leaving the apartment that often. The scoot generally sits for a week or so between rides. And it usually needs some cobwebs blown out. Oddly, it started first kick. Which I was not expecting. And then, by the time I rode it across the parking lot and tried to get on the road, it died and would not start again. Huh. That's interesting. Checked the fuel and everything. Everything seemed fine. And was the electric start working? Uh, no, that battery's been shot forever. I've gotten it to work. Um, on yours, not mine. Uh, we'll see. No, that battery's totally fucked. Okay. Did you see that the battery. Of the smoke? That battery. Well, it may be that the battery has gotten so bad that it now will not work. In that. It was essentially acting as just big enough of a capacitor to allow the electrics to work. That could be the case. And mm. it finally gave up the ghost. But uh, yeah. I don't know. It was... I And I might have been able to get it running again. But I just didn't have the time. I was like, let's just get over there. So we shall see. Well, okay. Since I own the exact same make and model and year scooter that you do, I do have to like if I leave it sitting, I do have to like th- those two stroke engines. I just like blow the hell out of the carburetors. Well, actually, um, Scooter Dan gave us a great tip on that, mm-hmm. which is turn your fuel off and then kick the shit out of it huh. to just get. Just to stop because those those uh, those carbs will will leak over time and it'll get oh. super rich, 
And really, it's not that you're getting gas to the motor. It's get, you're getting gas vapors out of the cylinder <laughs> to get it started. And just kick it over or use the electric start to just blow everything out, then turn the gas on. Yeah, because think about it, Mike. That cylinder, it, it's, it's, it's a flat single, mm-hmm. basically, and the carburetor is mounted above it. Yeah. So, so anything, leaking. so any, any carb over, any mm-hmm. floatable overflow is going to go like down into the combustion chamber. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so they flood super duper easy. Oh. Anyway. Um, oh, I had a problem oh. with my scooter, uh, just like two days ago. Uh, I was running it and I drove it around the neighborhood because I hadn't run it for a couple of weeks. And I went to, uh, I turned off the fuel line to get the gas out of it because I run my carbs like empty when I put it away. And it never turned off. <laughs> and I had it running for like 15 minutes. And so I'm wondering if like there's a, if, uh, if something in like my fuel line cutoff switch broke. How did you turn it to turn it off? The, the fuel line, like the, the right. Which, I which turned way it from reservoir it? all the way over to off. Does yours actually have the off sticker on it? Um, the hand, the uh, the little handle that you turn. If you turn it all the the way to the right, the top says like F for fuel, and you turn it, or R for reservoir. And if you turn it all the other way, there's an O for off, and then in the middle is full on. Yeah, that adds up. Um, so let's see. But anyway, I had to turn the yeah. key in order to shut the thing off. All right. So okay. So we've got we got uh, intros and pleasantries out of the way. Let's get to some housekeeping and our table of contents for the episode. Let's do a little bit of an update on how the Patreon's going. Real quick. Let's talk about best worst bike. We're gonna do a roundup of new bikes that are coming out and we got a lot of thoughts on these and then we've also got a how to sound like you know what you're talking about we're going to talk about bump starts everything you need to know about the the dying art of bump starting a motorcycle it seems pretty simple but i think a lot of people are getting out of touch with this so i think it's worth going over so um let's say hey we've gotten up to what eight patrons now so it's doubled since we put out the last episode i as of this recording still need to make good on my promise of designing some merch for the patreon but i promise i'm going to have that done this weekend so by the time you hear this there should be something up there for you to get as a little bonus for signing up I'm thinking maybe like a beanie with that that oval logo that we got. I'm thinking that's what I'm going to go with since we're going into fall here. That seems like a thing that people might want. Um, But who knows? It'll be something like that. And then I'll add more or whatever. But yeah, we, we are approaching a level that breaks even on the monthly cost of doing this show, which is pretty good. I'll take it, you know, uh, I mean, it beats, you know, paying you guys to basically put out a podcast. Um, yeah. So thank you everybody. And, uh, thank you junkie for a shout out of our Patreon on his show, which is odd. We are now obliged to join, I guess, other people's Patreons. 
I mean, although that seems like an odd model for a bunch of shows to join every other show's Patreon, because like you're all just like handing like a five dollar bill in a circle, but it becomes worth less every time you trade it, right? I've thought about this a lot, but I think it's totally worth it to cause mayhem in uh, Junkie's Patreon feed. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a nice show of solidarity as well. So I guess, yeah, we'll do it. Uh, I mean, we were uh, we were signed up for the Misfits a while back, but maybe we need to like revisit and kind of join all those things again. Okay, so that takes us to, what do you say, best worst bike, guys, huh? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to do best worst bike in the world this week, and here's how it's going to go. Each week... For the most part, we pick a different motorcycle and we alternate who has the best and who has the worst bike in the world this week. We don't know what each other have chosen. It's always a surprise. Now, it's really just a fun way to look at a couple different bikes in a way that you don't normally look at them. So don't you get super duper upset. Okay. Just, you know, if you got to give us feedback, send it to contact at nokamotopodcast.com and um, you know, I know you can't kiss the envelope of, well, you know, if you want, no, you can't send us actual mail, but like kiss the screen, you know, like as if you're kissing an envelope when you, when you hit click send on the mouse, right? I just want you to kiss the screen. Okay. And send your email with love. So Swigs, you have best bike in the world this week. I do. Excellent. And are you ready to reveal it? I am. And the best bike in the world this week is... The Suzuki GSX-S1000F. Oh, the new bike. No. The old version of the new bike. Oh, the stupid looking bird one. The angry bird, yes. Because it's going to be a bargain now? I mean, it's a lot of bang-for-buck engine. It's a lot of bang-for-buck engine. Uh, I mean, I have thoughts of this with our bike releases later on, but hey, let, let's do it. Okay, convince okay. me. Sell me. So, you know, as as just as a, as a presentation, every time we've seen this bike, it's always been kind of, well, what the fuck is this? This looks ridiculous. Yeah, what 2004 design did somebody lose underneath their couch and pull out as a supposed original idea of a motorcycle? Yes, but it actually has a lot of things going for it. So it's a one liter in line four, but it's a strangely high performance but detuned in line four. Isn't it like 147 horsepower, something like that? It's 147 and a half. Oh, yeah. How <laughs> fucking good am I? I haven't looked on the specs for this thing for like 18 months. How yeah. did I know that? But it's not, it's, it is still a short stroke motor, but it's a significantly longer stroke than, than a GSXR 1000. Yeah, Suzuki it, it does like is actually really good about taking their various engine platforms and meaningfully 
adjusting them for other bikes you know like the like honda will keep the same bore and stroke but basically just change the fuel mapping and then they give you the famous it's been retuned for mid-range right suzuki actually redoes the bore and stroke and the fuel mapping and adjusts like the specs on cranks and things like that they really are different engines just on the same overall design right so this is a 73 by 59 millimeter born stroke, which again is still an aggressive short stroke, but it's not insane race spec short stroke. Right. Yeah. And if you're not hitting the track, anything above a hor- 100 horsepower is dumb levels of power to have anyway. So yeah, you right. might as well give yourself the grunt. So there's that. And it, but it's still a 12.2 to 1 compression ratio, which is where all that power is coming from. But you get that full 147 horsepower at 10,000 RPM, which is not crazy high for an inline four. Fair. But at the same time, because it's an inline four, it doesn't have the long wheelbase that a lot of the V and L twin sport touring bikes do. Well, and it's also got that solid front feel with the four cylinders slanted forward. Right. It's got that forward weight bias that gives it that, that high speed uh, stability. So ultimately, when you combine that with the fact that it has an upright seating position, it's under 500 pounds wet with a four and a half gallon fuel tank this is actually a really really neat little sport tour yeah but it's got terrible arrow for a sport tour it doesn't have amazing arrow but it still has a lot better arrow than a lot of other bikes when you consider how large the bike is yeah i mean it's probably on tour on 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 uh, par with like a like a like a Ninja 1000 SX. Well, it's not quite that small, but it's a lot smaller than a lot of bigger tours. Yeah. It, it's way lower of a profile than something like a GS1150 or a GS1200. But what you end up having is something that's very manageable, something with a fairly low center of gravity... It's a shorter wheelbase. I think it's like 50, yeah, 57 and a half inches. You know, and once you're, once you're cruising on the highway, that short wheelbase doesn't feel all that weird. But also with a lower weight and it's a, it's a 32 inch seat height. Like this is actually just a really nice light, you know, comparatively for a for a sport touring bike lightweight short wheelbase kind of package and you know the styling never spoke to anybody all that well i've never met a single person or talked to or i've never heard anyone say good things about the looks of this bike but it is kind of weird and now that we've got the new 1000 GT bike coming out from Suzuki, this is now kind of moving off into that little bit of that, you know, it's a little bit, it's going to become a little bit more orphaned 
within the brand. And they keep trotting these things out for for trade shows, so they've got to have a lot of them in stock. I think this is going to become a really nice budget purchase for a lot of people to do some touring on. Oh, it's definitely going to become budget because this model's just been replaced. Yeah, that's what I was saying with the with the one thousand GT. Oh, sorry, I missed. That. Sorry, I was googling something. I missed that part. Yeah. So, um, okay, but it's now, but you know, now that it's not being now that so it's they're going to lop off like eight hundred bucks at the dealership in like another nine months. So yeah, sleep on it for a little bit. But if you're ready to pull the trick, but the, okay. So like a lot of bikes, I've said, I, I can go with you on this with the caveat that this is the best bike in the world for you if you care about miles more than you care about how you look. Well, that's the Norge in a nutshell. Well, right. <laughs> but, you know, that's not true for everybody, right? Not a lot of people are like, well, you know, I just want a bike to eat miles. A lot of people want a bike to ride 45 minutes at a time only. And but they're I, willing to compromise comfort. And they're willing to compromise the bike being the perfect thing for the type of riding that they're doing for the way the bike makes them feel. And that's completely legitimate. So, this this is one of those bikes that yeah would be very good but only if you care about very sporty like getting in a lot of miles in a sporty way yeah, well I'm actually no. a lot of pictures of people really kind of hunched forward on this bike like it's got that upright seating position but i don't know if it's the uh i don't know if the wind is being like pushed right up into your helmet if you're up Right, like I feel like if you really sat upright on this thing, it'd just be blasting air directly into your helmet. I don't see anyone sitting on it in a way that looks comfortable to me. Um, well, do you remember my uh, my ZX six hundred? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they're not leaning forward on the tank like it's a again, it's this upright seating position. Like it's like you'd be surprised how much a windscreen will deflect air over. Mm-hmm. over the actual windscreen itself yeah it's gonna do fuck all for your hands and mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. that's really a big one for me when we're talking about putting in lots of miles i'm not super stoked about the arrow on this bike but i, I believe it does it does a, a something for your upper body right. you'd be surprised even what my super hawk would do mm. probably just you. doesn't look good in the pictures to have someone well, sitting w- way up i mean the other thing i would say is that this Bike does it in a way that's a lot closer to, you know, uh, something like an SV650 in terms of posture. Like it's, it's actually kind of just in terms of weight. I mean, yeah, it's a bit more heavy, but it's still very lightweight for a touring bike and something that I think is a manageable for a lot more people. I think it has its own little strengths there. In that it's sort of in this style of like a, um, uh, like a concourse, but scaled down. And I think there, I think there's a a niche there that a lot of people would fit into that would really prefer that. I mean, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I mean, for the most part, I, 
Hmm, there's just something that strikes me odd about this bike. And like I said, it's, it's something like it's, it's like half of it was designed five years ago and half of it was designed 15 years ago. Well, that's Suzuki in a nutshell. That's true. Yeah. It's a very, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so Suzuki. Isn't it? Yeah. Maybe, maybe this is why I still haven't owned a Suzuki of any kind yet. I need to own a Suzuki. Well, the first Suzuki I ever owned is going to be a Jixer of some kind. Uh, th- there's just no way around that. Probably a, probably, probably a 750. Um, there, you know, we don't have yeah. a name for, for the, the, st- for the, for the GSXS yet. Yeah, we've got Jixer for the GSXS. Oh, people say Jixus. Very few of them, but those that are like die hard about the naked style. Yeah. Say it. Well, this is. I, I don't know if I can go in for that because that's that's the level of pedantry that's like oh it's like the Buell people that are fuelers and framers fuelers like it, and framers yeah it's yeah. real it's real <laughs> uncomfortable yeah but you know <laughs> whatever I just say XB all that stuff makes me uncomfortable <laughs> right <laughs> if it's making Mike uncomfortable then then we're going somewhere um, I like the new uh, katana if you're talking about Suzuki's you'd want to own. I mean, the Katana is basically a GXX, GSXS, a Jixus, but like in it's, a it's, much a, it's essentially this bike with a different fairing. Yeah, yeah, it's this bike with totally different bodywork. Yeah, yeah, it, it, you know, and I well, would own this over a new Katana. I think I'd go Katana. There, there is something about the Katana bodywork, both the new and the Gen One. That just, I find it offensive in the same way that, like, in the same way that a fire alarm just, like, turns me into a Neanderthal that wants to hurt something. Like, the next thing I set eyes on that's animated, I will destroy. Like, it's, there's something about it that just, I can't deal with. Huh. Okay. Well, I mean, okay. Uh, Wait, I want to explore this deeper. So so you totally like Hulk out whenever you see a Suzuki Katana? No, when he hears fire alarms. No, well, that's what he's comparing. Well, there's something about it that's just like wrong to me. It, I don't know how to describe it. Um,. Yet you own a Futura. Yeah, does the Futura... Yep, the Futura looks awesome. Sure. <laughs> you, no, you're not going to... I'm not going to back down on this. The Futura I, oh, is yeah. awesome, but I'm... <laughs> so, so the, right. the, the... Taste is taste. The Katana, just... for me, goes into this category of bikes that divide the room, and the very fact that they divide the room is cool in and of itself. And eventually, if you force yourself to, you know, kind of look at pictures, get up close to everyone you see in the wild and all that kind of stuff, it eventually grows on you. And so a very close example to this, I would say, is the VMAX. The VMAX has this look that really divides the room. Half of people are just like, that is fucking cool. And half the people go, why does this cruiser look so fucked up? And I don't know. I look at the the V Max and I think like, 
oh, that's hard to love, but I get it. So, so the the katana really is the same way. I think the difference is is that you find V Maxes in the wild, and you get up close to them, and you kind of see how the bike presents in person, and get to know the curves of it and whatever. And then the next time you see a picture of it, you're like, oh, okay, I get that part of it a little bit more now. And katanas just aren't really in the wild. You know, original katanas and the new ones. The new ones because they just haven't sold that many yet because they're new and the last year's been like COVID. And, you know, the old ones are just collectible and expensive. So you don't really get a chance to understand how the dimensions of them really work in person. And I think if you had seen as many katanas in the wild as you've seen v maxes you might kind of turn around on it a little bit just just my little theory there it, it has to grow on you i think but, uh, but there are some people that just get it right away um uh because i used to hate the original the original as well and and i think the new one is such a uh a wonderful modern interpretation of the, of the original too. So I don't know. I'm all about it, but Hey, you know, teach you some, um, but let's see here. We've already got 25 minutes into this. Should we go to worst bike? Let's do it. Okay, here we go. Um, I don't think we've done this yet. So, and the worst bike in the world this week is the 1972 to 1974. I think Yamaha, TX750. I don't think we've done this. Have we done this? We might have done the 500. Okay. I I remember just doing ATX of some kind, but I don't know if we've done this one. Well, I have a backup bike if we have done this. Do we just want to go with this? Let's go with this. Okay. What's your other brother have? His Yamaha? It's an 80. XS... He, he has an excess. Okay. 400. Oh, is it just a 400? Oh, it's the 400 special, isn't it? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Okay. It might as well say LTD on the side of it. <laughs> um, I think I did the TX500 at some point. Okay. Well, let's talk about let's the TX750. So the Yamaha TX750 is a bike that nobody asked for. And it's a bike that came with new technology that wasn't well thought out. It wasn't well designed, though it was almost well designed. So the story sort of goes that as the calendar turned to the 70s. Oh, you know what we did? We did the dirt bike version of this in the 500. With Was this the bike with the pointless... Um, the pointless ignition system. I don't know. I'm, oh, 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 oh! Which one was that? The pointless ignition system. <laughs> no, the pointless ignition system. That yeah, I did that. The pointless ignition system was the. Um, no, that was a Suzuki. Uh, that was a Suzuki R. Oh, that was okay. Yeah, that was the bike that uh, Star Trek guy brought out. Anyway, doesn't matter. Um, so, uh, the Yamaha TX750. So the 70s come around and most of the, uh, Japanese big four have transitioned over to four stroke. Um, Suzuki's still holding strong with their two strokes, right? 
um, they got their, their X six hustler and all of that stuff. Right. And the, the TX, uh, seven fifty was produced along the same time as the, basically the XS 650. We all know the XS 650, the, a uh, great classic bike, collectible today, often referred to as the best bike that, um, Triumph never made. Right. Right. Beautiful engine that basically took the Triumph motor and fixed its little problems and made it better. And there you go. And then we've got the TX 750 because, well, what's better than a, a 650? A 750 twin, right? And I, this bike is interesting to me because, well, one, it's a little bit of an engineering disaster. And two, it's a UJM that failed, which there aren't very many of. So if you want to think about how this bike looks, it kind of looks like the second generation of the Honda CB450. I would it, say it looks it looks it's a bit more blocky. It looks a little bit more Actually, it kind of looks like a Honda CB360 but with a little bit of a bigger tank. Yeah, or um or a Kawasaki um GS650. You mean a Suzuki GS650? Or Suzuki, yeah. Sorry. Uh which will come later. Yeah, uh, perhaps. Um it's a bit more blocky. It's a bit more it's a bit tall. It seems a bit taller. Right. So it's a it's a 750 twin. And uh, there were still some people that kind of wanted more sort of I guess like the twin thing might have seemed a little bit more retro versus your inline fours that were coming out around this time. You know, around this time we've got the Z900 and the Z1 and uh, we've got the the CB750 and all that stuff. But a lot of people are still like, meh, all you need's a twin. What's all this inline four nonsense all about? Like the inline four is still kind of new, right? I mean, even though the Japanese have been pumping out or Honda have been pumping out inline fours of all kinds of different stuff by this point, it, it's still sort of like, whoa, do we need four cylinders? Right. So, so it's like, hey, you know, there's a lot of 750s on the market. We'll have a 650, we'll have a 750. Like, they're just feeling shit out. They don't know what people want. So the XS 650, huge success with this motor. I, this, this like shares no parts with the XS 650. It's not just a bigger twin. So they introduce a couple pieces of technology with this bike that turn out to be at first praised and later disastrous. So, <laughs> um, the, uh, the big thing is it's called like the uh, the Omni what? Let me look it up here. Da, 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 da. Um, the Omni Phase Balancer. So this bike was a uh, I think a 180 crank 750. So the twin. So this thing like vibrates a lot. So they've got this Omni Phase Balancer, 
And it says the Omni phase system used one chain driven weighted shaft in the engine sump rotating in the direction opposite of that of the crankshaft to counteract forces created by the piston. So kind of like a very early version of what Mark Marquez's um, race bike has, <laughs> which um, I don't know. A lot of people like a lot of moto journalists liked it at the time because it did a pretty good job of balancing and canceling out forces or whatever, but it had this one serious downside. And I put this down to Japanese manufacturers just designing so much, cranking out so much, people buying so much, and having just generally lower expectations they could get away with shit like this. This counterbalancer would froth up the oil making the engine unable to pump it, starving the top end of the motor of oil and oh because it was wear. because it was counter rotating with the engine oh so it was That's creating a a, problem. this this weird like vortex frothing up the oil because it was an all going in one direction right ah okay and they didn't test the motor enough to catch this so it would only happen if you rode it for long enough over enough miles and enough in one setting mm-hmm. to actually cause the issue. This issue became well known enough after about a year that as the dealers were selling them, and in fact even some publications that reported on the bike recommended that Yamaha customers, if they wanted this bike, it would be worth it to buy it if they bought and attached their own oil cooler to the bike. Not making this shit up. This is all on the wiki for this bike. That <laughs> That's a level of insanity that's up there with the Z1 RTC. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I so and, and to confirm that that in fact was the fix that by 1972 um, uh, the last year this bike was in Suzuki added an oil cooler to it to fix the problem that like that legit was like the sort of fix for this but it didn't I mean and I guess like having the oil be cooler like made it you know it was thicker so it didn't froth up so easily and whatever I don't know exactly um suzuki in 72 was like nobody say recall yeah and then um i well how could you recall so there were also problems with the tensioner on the chain for the omni drive system as Mm. well i mean this bike had major issues in several different areas well if you have this like chain driven counterbalancer that's like running in the opposite direction. Like that's not a recall situation that you can back out of. Like you've got to design some weird new part that like stops the frothing. Like, I don't know if there is a back out there. There is no exit scenario. So also (laughs) this bike had a, a, a balancer in between the two header pipes in the front which got so hot it would fail. Again, this is from a lack of testing. 
There's just, I'd have no, it must be, right? I, I mean, I don't, how do you put a balancer between your headers and not like test it and see that it gets so hot it just fucking fails? I, I don't know what that, I, maybe it was a welding problem at the factory or something. I don't know. But that's a pretty big one as well. Like you're just riding along and all of a sudden, like, hmm, things just got a lot louder. I wonder why. I, uh, you know, <laughs> I, but there you go. Um, now, as far as the performance of this bike, fairly positive reviews. This is a 750 twin in 1972, and Yamaha claimed 63 horsepower. So we could assume it probably made like 55. That's pretty good uh, for a 750 twin of that time, right? It's I mean, not bad. To yeah. this day, I don't think a W800 really does that. Uh, no, W800, I think, still makes, like, 48 horsepower. Like, I think the W650 makes more horsepower than a modern W800. Right. So, I mean, you know, power-wise, it wasn't bad, and it's all kind of, and 50 foot-pounds of torque, too, which, I mean, yeah, 750 twin makes sense with that, but... I, you know, 6,000 RPM. I mean, it wasn't a bad idea on paper, but I have to just put this out to a little bit of the Japanese just being able to put out so much stuff in this era and gas crisis and all that. And people just buy and buy and buy and Japanese bikes by the truckload. Just this bit of garbage snuck in this untested piece of crap. And yeah, I, you know, the, uh, there were, there were right around this year, there were a, a, a kind of a batch of unsuccessful bikes, like the, the KZ750, the Suzuki T500. They're all kind of these, like, all considered like heavyweight twins from the Japanese. And I mean, what was crushing was CB350s. I, I, you know, cause they were just more gas efficient, whatever. So all these bikes, I think were doomed to failure anyway, from what I understand of what people were buying. They were either buying CBXs or they were bought. Well, no, they weren't CBXs at this time. They were either buying CB750s, you know, some sort of Harley or the super small uh, fuel efficient things. Like and you, you know, owned a CB from this era, right? Yeah. I had a 71 CB350. 71. I think it was 71. I think so. You yeah. said over the years that, uh, like, when the Z1 came out, like, that just changed motorcycles. The, like. I mean, the CB750 mm-hmm. did a little bit more than the Z1, but the Z1 was a big, was like, the Z1, the Z1 is the first time that the Japanese get into, I think the CB750, like, sort of, and then the Z1 kind of, going oh we see your cb750 and go z1 is where the japanese speed wars start Mm. so that's the significance of the z1 for me is the the speed wars that kind of ended with the hayabusa starts with the z1 because yeah there's the cb750 you could say is the start but not really because there wasn't really a sort of super bike challenger Right, you need a challenger for there to be a contest. How far back does that go? Like, are we in the Speed Wars back in like seventy two? Yeah, well, it's about the start. Um, yeah, but but these bikes aren't; these are not Speed Wars bikes. These, but um, 
I mean, this is just sort of like, oh, Americans want bigger displacement. How can we make that for them? Mm. This is like Yamaha and Suzuki Kawasaki's first forays into things more than 400 cc's this mm. this this you know so that technological leap they made this is like before that it's really like more just like how can we out. scale up the air cooling how can we start you know how can we make our oil systems pump faster how can we how how do we get this bigger right we can do more we can do high rpm and all that kind of stuff but we've done it two stroke before let's start perfecting our four strokes let's you know Let's get all the latest tech in there, and they're 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 stepping into uncharted territory for them. Um, so yeah, you get it, but you know, for the most part, they nailed it on so many of their bikes. But here's a UJM that fucking sucks, right? A rare thing, but there were some. You know, I love Yamahas, but you know, they had to fuck up somewhere, and here it is: the TX750. You've well, never seen one of these on bikes, Exif, yeah. right? And there's a reason. I don't know. Thoughts? Yeah, uh, that's fair. I mean, I mean, to be fair, like if Suzuki was selling the same bike and they th- and they realized that they could have gotten 0.1 percent more horsepower by adding arsenic to the fuel, they would have gone for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah. Yeah, I guess it was kind of like this... It's a weird sort of tragic situation where... I guess it. this is still at the point where, like, you know, Yamaha wouldn't be doing testing in Europe or in America. They do it all in Japan. And they didn't really realize, like, how people would actually use the bike. Because there is no... There's nowhere in, in Japan that you're like, well, let's just do you know, a 100-mile trip on a 750 at 65 miles an hour in 1972. Like, that just wasn't a thing that you could do. So, it'd be interesting to see, like, what was the, what was the point in time when all the Japanese testing started going more overseas and doing more kind of real-world Western traffic style testing oh i wanted to add as well that this even if you did want to buy one of these bikes today it's also this this one really super simple thing about it that makes it basically impossible to own that it had this it has this like super rare oil filter that is because it's a dry sump motor it's in the weird spot and you just can't really get them so you have to buy an adapter for it to put a traditional style oil filter onto it. Do you have to and buy a new uh, oil cover case, like case cover as well? I don't know if you need a case. Oh, I, mean, I can't. I didn't. I didn't see what the adapter looks like. But yeah, you have to find this super weird adapter part for it to put a regular oil filter on it and then who knows if it really still works the right way like it's fucking dumb it's just not worth your time these things should all just be like in the window of like trendy barber shops and shit no one should actually ride them that that's what i'm saying really maybe these should be on bike exif (laughs) (laughs) anyway um 
Okay, so I think let's move on to uh, let's move on to how to sound like you know what you're talking about. We should take a quick break. Okay, because I really have to pee. Oh, excellent. All right, let's do that, and then we'll be back with the segment. Where's the thing here? Here we go. And we are back, and it is time for another exciting how to sound like you know what you're talking about. Our dubious tech segment or how-to segment or whatever. So we've I, I really feel like with this, we're gonna hit our stride getting back to this how to sound like you know what you're talking about series. So I think this is a perfect one. And in case you forgot from the beginning of the episode, we're going to be talking about bump starting. And again, what I think is an increasing lost art of bump starting. And I well, electric starts just so good now, right? So it's not really necessary. Yeah, I mean, nowadays it's not going... I guess nowadays... If you have to bump start your bike, it's generally a combination of you did something really dumb, like turn your bike from off to park when you pulled up. Or well, no, you meant you almost turned it off, but you went you went one, one click too far and you went to no, park. Yeah, or one click too less. Yeah, yeah, and left it an accessory. Yeah, or you've got a bad battery. Which is probably the more like, well, no, I'm going to say putting into park or, or into accessory mode is probably the most common one. Or you were or hanging out. Draining your battery. You were hanging out in the Target parking lot at 10 o'clock at night with your other Jixer and R6 friends. And you were just like sitting there really cool with your headlights on for whatever reason for 28 minutes. And then were super confused as to why your bike wouldn't start after yeah. that. So the first thing I want to do is let's short circuit the whole bump start process uh, contingency. And let's talk about what you should own to make this a totally unnecessary thing. Okay. Which is you should own a lithium ion uh, jump start pack. Because these are now so cheap and they're so good. That you can just never have to deal with this again if you just have your USB style jump start pack. Well, yeah, it's just what the jump box is turned into is now this little tiny pack. That's but a how, 50th of the size. How heavy are they? Oh, I, the, Nothing. the weight of your iPhone. Oh. Well, they're not quite that. Maybe small. a little heavier, yeah. No, but but I mean, it's, it's, it's less than a pound to carry the leads and the battery pack. Yeah, it's the weight of like my wallet, I guess my my biker wallet. Uh, it, it, uh, so a so pair of car jumper cables, maybe. Weigh it, they're like one foot jumper cables, and something that's like twice the size of your average USB battery pack. Yeah, the the alligator clips only have like two and a half teeth on each side. They're like this big, mm-hmm. and the whole cord's this long. This is a great pod. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like Swig said, it's like a foot because okay. you just hold the box and plug it on your battery and go. 
Like so I paid like 80 bucks for mine, and it has enough cold cranking amps to start my truck. Oh, there's one for $53 that's the same specs at Costco right now. I know this because Claire got one the other day. And they totally work. And they're like, you know, if you look at like the size of the... Yeah, they'll start your bike 30 times in one day if you need them to. I don't know if you go for 30. I think that might be optimistic. I can see it happening. I think you could reliably... You could count on it for like 10. Like confidently. But yeah, it's, it's... it's a great little piece of equipment. And otherwise, you know, it's just something that can charge your phone like 10 times off a single charge. It'll charge your phone a meaningful amount after it won't charge your uh, your bike anymore. Yeah. So just a great little piece of kit that is just, even if you never have to start your bike or your car or your truck off of it, is honestly just a really useful little thing to have, especially for like camping or in whatever emergency situation. If you're on a road trip, someone should have one of these, and there's no excuse not to. Now, if you find yourself around town and your bike just won't start, you know, I'll, I'll forgive you for, you know, you're like, well, I only went eight miles from my house. I didn't bring the jump box. Okay, so what do you do? Well, let's break down the bump start. What are you doing? You're simulating a kickstart is what you're doing. And there, it's not, there's not just one way to do it. There's many ways to do it that are based on your environmental factors, right? So let's, let's see. There's several techniques. And depending on what you're doing, some of these techniques are going to, or work better than others. I mean, what you don't want to end up is a situation where, like, Mike, do you remember when we went to St. Louis? Mm-hmm. And um I didn't realize that I'd put those um those nuts with the wax coating yeah, on yeah. my battery mm-hmm. and like I was only getting like s- like charge into my battery a third of the time yeah. on that Nighthawk cuz I hadn't cranked it, the nut down enough. Um so we were like, well, w- someone was like, "Well, why don't you bump start it?" And like, you know, internet was a thing back then, but like smartphones weren't. And it was like, okay, we'll bump start it. I think it was me who suggested. Well, well, how do we do that? Uh, right. Well, I learned to bump start on my uh, uh, on my Chevy Metro. Right, but but as far as like you know, doing it to a, to a motorcycle, mm-hmm. it was a new thing, and like, yeah, yeah we got animal. it. But we spent what like two hours trying to perfect the technique. Mm-hmm. Pushing that bike up the hill and then down again, then back up the hill, then down again. Oh, okay, so this is important. So those bikes were uh, a 550 and a 650, and it was the 650 we were trying to bump start. The la- the most recent time I tried to bump start something was my 1000cc Ulysses. That's a big uh, ask. It's yeah. still doable. We did it. Yeah, we did. You're right. You're right. But anyway, I mean, but I mean, well, that will, well, the technique that we used for that, we'll, we'll get to that. So, so yeah, so what you're trying to do is, is, you know, your, your electric starts not, your electric starts not working because your battery's dead, most likely, right? So you need to simulate a kickstart. So what you need to do is you have to get the bike moving because you don't actually have a kickstart, right? When you do the kickstart, you 
you put the bike in neutral and you you hit the kickstarter and it turns the crank and it's not connected to the gearbox so you're just kicking the pistons and you're only working against the compression of the engine and there you go and you get the engine to spin and it starts it's just like the electric start except it's, it's spinning slower and it doesn't spin as much and doesn't spin for as long so it doesn't start as reliably but guess what it's just your kick power so you can do it over and over and over again okay cool but you don't have a kickstarter so what do you do you push the bike but you can't real well you you push the bike but it's not really that simple either. Essentially, what you're going to do is you're going to push the bike and then you're going to let the clutch out, which will engage it back. And then the engine's going to spin. Mm-hmm. And so when you and your buddy start to push the bike, you're in neutral because that's how a bike moves. Well, first of all, do you have to have the ignition turned on. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> This is, you would be amazed how many people I've seen try this that don't have the bike turned on. They're like, why can't I bump start it? Well, the bike still has to be turned on. I know there's no power. But the, first of all, make sure it's turned on. You might wear yourself. Because here's the thing. You, this is why we're going over this. You need to know to do this because you might do it 10 or 12 times and you'll be surprised how fast this fucking tires you out. Yeah. And if you oh, did it yeah. 10, 12 times and then you realize that you haven't had the ignition on, all sorts of shit could have gone on, like yeah. flooding the engine and other different things. It's They're also a big morale problem. It's a big morale problem, especially if you have engaged the help of other people. So first mm-hmm. off, make sure the key's in the fucking on position. Yeah. And who knows where this might happen to you. I mean, you could have you know, had to pull over to the side of the highway and you're on a gentle slope but further down that slope is like a freaking like lake or something and you've got to push it up the hill in order to roll it back down oh the absolute worst is when you have a downhill slope to help you kickstart a bike and then you use it you get to the bottom it doesn't work and then you realize that the ignition wasn't on Mm, right that is soul crushing Oh my! Tell gosh. me how I know. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. So you start so, rolling and you're in neutral because that's the easiest way to get up to the speed that's necessary. Well, okay. So there's several different things. So, so okay. There's a few different methods here. Okay. So if your bike is sort like, there's been a couple times where I, you know, you you hit the starter and it kind of does that whir whir whir, right? If you still got a little something. It's conceivable you might be able to just sort of like waddle the bike along and then, you know, in neutral, just waddle it along by yourself and then click it into first gear and let the clutch out by yourself. And it might fire up because you still got a tiny bit of juice and you've given it that help. And there you go. And that's totally worth giving it a go. If you've still got a little wow, wow, wow left in your starter. Go for it. It's a fit, it's a crapshoot, but hey, it's worth it because it may just go. And then you may have to do what I call the Pony Express, where you sit next to the bike and you push it along and then you jump onto it and. Oh, so like the MotoGP start? 
Right. The MotoGP bump start. Yeah. And, and, and there, and there you go. Now, I also want to add something in here if you're doing this off road. So if you've got an adventure bike or a dirt bike, you know, something you're riding off road, which is a place where you might definitely need to do this because you're out in the middle of nowhere. This is like why it's called the Pony Express for me, because it's very important that when you click down, you kind of make a little bit of a jumping motion and you press weight down on the bike, whether you smash your ass down on the seat or like whatever you do, you get weight on that back wheel to engage traction. And this isn't a bad idea on the street either especially if it's a lightweight bike because you need no slipping to happen. And it's weird. You're, you know, you're rolling along with the bike, but when you put it into first gear, that back wheel is going to want to skid. And so I recommend doing this on the street as well. It's not as necessary as dirt, but when you click down into gear, Try to smash your ass down on the seat to prevent the wheel skidding. You want traction. You want, because you need that traction to turn the motor or else it's not going to work. Right. Well, I mean, and on the street, it's not going to happen much and you don't think it's all that important, but you have to keep in mind that the entire transmission is not spinning that the cylinders aren't moving and all of a sudden if you've got a big enough bike you may have like 15 pounds of steel that's just not moving that in an instant that clutch engages has to move in order for the stator to get going to give you the charge to to get ignition yeah and yeah, if it slips just a little bit, if you've ever, you know, if you've never been in this situation before, the margin between what will start your motor and what won't is so is so slight in so many circumstances when you're trying to do it off pure mechanical energy. Like it's a big deal. I. I- Keeping the momentum of this, uh, explain, Swig, sort of your choice of gear when you start moving. So you've got your options are neutral, first gear, and second gear. Well, neutral is not an option because that will not spin your stator. Um, but no, no, no. You can. I, I've I've done bump starts where you know if you've you got start out wide enough, neutral. like if if I'm trying to bump start like a, a Vespa or something, where yeah, you I, I'll put it if it's lightweight, I'll put it neutral and just push it along. So the reason you would want to start a bike in neutral and push it along is if it's a very low displacement bike that doesn't really need a whole lot of force to kick it over. You can, you, cause you're going to be able to push the bike the easiest in neutral, right? Yeah. You can put it in first gear, second gear, third gear, whatever, and hold the clutch in, but you're going to have some resistance, especially on a dirt bike. If you 
just push the bike in neutral and then just dump it to first and let the clutch in. Oh, okay, if it's yeah. a small displacement bike, that's your that's the least amount of energy you're going to expend doing it. Yeah, okay, yeah, I, I, that makes sense, but I mean... So kind of the heavier your bike gets, maybe you want to start in second gear and then click down to first, right? Because as you're moving, you want to already get that mass moving rather than, as you said, suddenly take it from nothing to, to get right. Oh, so you're saying use the little bit of slippage in even in neutral just to get some momentum in the motor? Right. Well, no, in, in, in first or second, yeah, yeah. So when yeah, I was yeah. when I was learning to do this in a car as a teenager, what I learned was rolling in neutral, and then it's a very quick motion of kicking it up into second and then dropping it into first. So it's like you you kind of well, well you're a, doing on it with a your car hand. Yes. yeah on a car it's a lot easier on a car. What you have to do on a car because there's just because there's just no way you're gonna be able to put the car weighs so much mm-hmm. there's no way you're going to be able to push it with the clutch in when it's in gear mm-hmm. it, it, you've just got some resistance there and the car weighs so fucking much you have to do it from neutral to well first. the car weighing so much is actually an advantage because the amount of potential energy in just pushing the car is so much that you can actually bump start it at a much lower speed that added as well okay. yes yeah, yeah. But when it's not in neutral, even if even with the clutch in, when you're in first or second or third, there's some extra drag, and the car just weighs so much. You're just like, why, like, you know? And as then as Swig said, like you know, pushing a car, you know, that's a that's. Well, you get to load. You're up very so much slowly energy. charging a very big battery in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, it's you know, two miles an hour pushing a car is so you know the yeah it's you, like pushing your your motorcycle like six miles an hour right yeah yeah well it's it's the ratio of the mass to the to the motor itself is really the comparison here so anyway yeah like do some experimenting with your bike because if your battery's totally fine you can just do this to your bike anyway and yes. just see if you can bump Which start your most, bike anyway. The most useful thing to do is if when you get a when you get a bike, if the bike is new to you, you should learn how to bump start it when it has a good battery. Yeah. yeah it out, won't hurt the bike. It's fine. Yeah. Figure out how to do it before the battery goes bad. Right. So figure out what gear you need to start in, what works best for your bike. Google some things about it, but gear choice can be important. Now, let's talk about Star- my starters favorite. also go bad too. Well, right. It's not just Let, the Let's talk about my favorite angle of this propulsion. There are, as I see it, four different ways to propel a bike for bump start. So we've already covered the one, which I'll, I'll, I'll say you can either waddle or the Pony Express, where you run alongside it and then jump on it, right? My favorite is the chariot. The chair. Oh, yeah, yeah. The sidecar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the, my favorite is um, you get the person who needs the bump start to lower one of their passenger pegs. And then you, on your bike, get on the right side of the bike. 
and you just lift up and put your left foot behind the right passenger peg, and you can just uh, modulate your yeah, clutch. first gear, just take off super slow with a lot of slow yeah. clutch movement. And just with your left foot against their right pillion peg, you push their bike. You can get it up to like five miles an hour. Oh, ease a lot faster and than just, that. And yeah. just, well, I mean, I, you, the sky's the limit, but yeah. You know, <laughs> in terms of what's sensible and safe to do, you can get well over whatever speed you would ever need to viably bump start the bike and just push them along on flat ground. In a pretty lightweight. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about uh, a method that I like to call the bandwagon, or or <laughs> falling off the bandwagon as it <laughs> often turns into. And this is probably actually the second most common. So what happens is someone tries to bump start a bike themselves a couple times. They're starting to get a little winded, and they're like, "I need help." So you enlist some people nearby. Often one of at least one other of them is a motorcyclist who may or may not have bump starting experience. And then there's often just some person who's kind of confused as to what's happening. And so this is where you get probably two well, other actually, people. Inevitably, you will have somebody who shows up who's very confused about what's what's happening, but very much wants to be involved and is very much not helping. Right. So you're going to have to coach them up on what they need to do, which is not much more than push, but they do have to push in a sort of specific way. Now, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get these people, two to three people, um, pushing the motorcycle. So you're going to start by waddling, and then they're going to come in with their power, right? And as soon as you're up to at least a jogging pace... And that's a jogging pace is what you need to produce the spark. You really don't need much more than that. Going much faster really isn't going to help your cause that much. But what you need to tell them is that if the bike starts, you need to fucking let go. All right. This is what you need to tell the person that shows up because it's weird how they will just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and, but they're holding on and they're gripping the bike. And when the bike does start, like you're going to rev it and you know, like, Oh shit, here we go. Pull the clutch back in, get the revs going and then let it out again and then keep going, you know, cause once it goes, you want to like kind of save it, but then you've got to let the clutch out slowly to keep it moving. Cause you, the last thing you want to do is actually stop because you know, you need to be putting charge back in the battery and shit and all that. Cra- right. But I, they hold on for some fucking reason. It's just human. You need to tell them if this bike starts, let go, let go. All right. So your bike friend will know this intuitively, but stranger that's just sitting there may not. So you need to know that it's working. Let's do it more. Uh, no, like we're, this is self. This is like a nuclear reactor. It's now self-sustaining. Okay. Like, now the, the way. <laughs> The, the last method really applies to off-road more than anything else. Uh, 
And this is probably only going to apply if you do trail riding and all that kind of stuff. And this is a very advanced technique, and you probably don't even need me to explain this to you if this is going to be of use to you, but this is where how to sound like you know what you're talking about really comes into its own. There is a tow rope method, and it's very, very specific. So if your bike dies and it's flooded and all this crap, and you're in an area where you can't really just leave the bike, like let's say a low traction zone, like some deep sand, uh, a river, a stream, something like that, and you cannot kick this bike over, and you know for various reasons, you need this bike moved, and it's not going to start, and pushing it out's not realistic or whatever, a tow rope. And the tow rope is very, very specific again, because like the push, right? It has to be on a certain side. So the, the, the person towing has to attach the tow rope to their left foot peg and then goes back to the right foot peg of the bike behind. Um, and so, this is. So the person standing on the right foot peg. So the, the bike being towed, uh-huh. it's going to their right foot peg because they need to access their gear lever. Okay. Right. And the person who's towing needs to, you know, be cool with this, this, uh, tow rope hooked to, you know, underneath the heel of their left foot on their, on, you know, mm-hmm. so they're going to take off in first gear. And this person, this needs to be a rider with exceptional clutch control exceptional clutch control and really needs to know their bike very well. And then not only that tower has it on their, has the rope on their left foot peg. Yes. Toei has -hmm. it on their right Right foot peg. peg. It only works in that setup. Okay. And then both people need to be experienced riders because you're going to pull them to the point in which they can start their bike, but then they need to pull, they need to get their bike started. There's probably going to be a hill or incline or something involved just because of the nature of the area where you would want to do this. Or knee high water. And then they're going to need to pull in the clutch and come to a stop and keep their engine moving, be able to disconnect this rope and then keep moving without killing the bike. So this is a very advanced maneuver, but if you find yourself doing some crazy trail riding, not the worst idea to bring like a 10 foot or 15 foot tow rope with you might really come in handy. So one, one thing. And by the way, if you have ever pulled this off, you are in rarefied air of like elite motorcycle fucking hero. <laughs> right. This is not something normal mortals do, but it is a thing. If if you, you guys- are you are yeah you are combining two competent people in a weird, rare scenario. If anyone listening has, happen, if anyone listening has, ever you can also do a car it with another car with a rope that's like not forgiving and flexible. Like if you ever tried right. to haul a car with a rope. You know, oh, you're yeah, encountering yeah. a lot of the same problems. Oh, it's way because, harder to be yeah. towed than it is to uh-huh. tow because you have to once know that rope how to gets ride taut, the brake. 
Yeah. Yeah, you have to actually be dragging the car in front of you a little bit. Otherwise, mm-hmm. yeah, there's snatch that happens. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, as a teenager, I tied it up to, like, the frame of my car, and it bent the freaking frame, like, in the gas tank. Yeah. Um, well, but one thing, I, uh, just to go back to just the base scenario of trying to bump start a street bike, if you are on your own and you have to do the waddle or... Or the side saddle technique. Uh, one thing I will very much recommend is don't try to do this with your helmet on. Because... Oh, you're going to sweat so much. You're going to... Su- well, it's something we... Everybody who has ridden enough knows this, but doesn't really internalize it. You know, everyone who ever has to sit for two minutes at a traffic... At a, at a red light will lift their visor up because your helmet restricts airflow enough that if you're stopped it's suffocating and you just need to lift your visor up so you can breathe when you're not moving at the same time i have seen so many people try to bump start their bike with their helmet on just take your helmet off put it on the sidewalk or in the parking lot wherever because you're going to try and bump start your bike like three times and you're going to be out of breath because you have no air circulation in your helmet and you're going to run out of breath. It doesn't matter how much, how good shape you're in, like you will just run out of oxygen. Yeah, that's an overlooked thing. That's, that's, that's a, that's a top tip. Just like making sure the ignition's actually switched on. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, just. Take your helmet off, leave it on the side, because once the bike is running and you're you're adding charge back in, because if the bike died after you had started it and you had given enough gas and got the engine warmed up, then you weren't getting home anyway because you've probably got a stator problem. Well, it depends. Is this a bike that takes a little time to warm up? Like, you know, is this a bike that's been sitting and you let the battery die and it needs to run on choke? Or is it fuel? You know, if it's fuel injected, yeah, you're fine. Just let it idle and you're good. But if it's an engine that needs to warm up a little bit and has choke, it might be more complicated. But in which case, you can still just sit there still and just keep revs on the engine until it's good. Yeah. Yeah, you can do that. But the main thing is like, you don't want to just like completely crush your spirit taking like three shots at it and running out of breath because you just have no air circulation because you're wearing this because you're wearing like a proper helmet and you just have no airflow while you're trying to run and push 400 pounds of bike. Yeah, I agree. All right. Any other little, uh, little tips and tricks on the, on the bump starting here? Um, I think we've covered it pretty well. There, there might be a few other little ins and outs, but for the most part, I think, you know, we've given a working basis. And so, you know, this is something that a lot of people are just never going to have to do. But, you know, if you listen to this segment, rewind it and listen back, you know, in, in describing bump starting to one of your friends, it's like, yeah, bump starting. I've heard about what is that? Maybe you'll be able to describe it and maybe you'll be able to sound at least. Like you know what you're talking about. Yeah, practice this one. Yeah, I get yeah, let's reiterate that. Let 
as your bike sits right now, totally functional, try to just bump start it with a good battery and a good starter and just just see what happens and what works. Yeah. Well, actually, another thing I'll add to this is this is kind of one of those things that... Unless your bike's electric, don't <laughs> don't waste your time. <laughs> one thing I will add to this is just um, you know, with you know with the uh, the W six fifty, it was kind of a great little thing to have an electric start and a kickstart, and be able to to know the difference. Like, when is this bike, you know? It's kind of an interesting little thing to just know how your bike is running when it's healthy and when it's not healthy. Oh, yeah. If your bike's working like it should, it should bump start real easy. Easier than it's going to be than when you have to do it for real. Probably. Yeah. Probably. Because even on a um, even on a, uh, a, a relatively modern bike with a kickstart and an electric start, it will start so much more easily with the electric start than it will with the kickstart. But you should get a feel for if you have a, if you have a bike with both an electric start and a kickstart, you should get a feel for what it's like to kickstart it. And you should regularly because yeah, when it stops kickstarting, that's your canary in the coal mine. Yeah, that that's another element to it, which is yeah, when you can't kickstart it but you can electric start it, then there may be something getting a little fouled up. Maybe you've got some bad carbs. Maybe the battery's not, well, not, not the battery, but you know, maybe you've got an airflow issue. Maybe you need to clean the filters. Maybe you need to clean the carbs. There's something going on. There's some fishy. All right. I, I think we got it. Let's take a quick break again, and then let's come back with a, a bike release roundup. Because, oh my gosh, I've got thoughts. So here we go. Let's do the thing again. Okay, and we're back again, and we're going to do another roundup of new bikes coming out. Because apparently the floodgates have opened. And all these bike designs and all these ideas that we were so ready to hear about in like March of 2020 or even late 2019 everything that got paused is now all coming out at once it's like i there was like it was like 20 was 2017 like that when was it that we were talking about like there's just like too many new bikes coming out now I 2018 was a pretty big year for a lot of bikes i guess it was yeah and now we've got this, we've had this backup and just new shit's being announced constantly. And it's almost hard to keep up. I don't know if it's just that we're returning to a regular rate of bikes coming out and it's like, whoa, we're so used to being starved. Or if it really is a lot of bikes coming out, but it feels like a lot. So I think we're going to be doing some new bike roundups for quite a few weeks in a row, or at least every other episode for a bit here, because there's a lot happening. And some of it's a little boring, and some of it's not. Some of it's imaginary. Some of it's things being teased. Some of it is super real and super disappointing. It's all over the map. It's 
it's kind of like the writer. Do you remember the writer strike in in TV and movies in like 2006 or whatever or four whatever year it was? And so we just had a mass like you know there's a big writer strike and then everything went to just okay, what reality TV shows do we have? Let's just keep doing those, like things that don't technically need writers. And then as soon as the writer strike ended, anything that had just like been pitched got greenlit, right? And I feel like that's what's happening with motorcycles. Anything that was half an idea as the pandemic started is just like, go, we need things, right? <laughs> So, so we've got some, some weird stuff here. I want to start with the new Suzuki because I mean, I talk a big game, but sometimes I am so vindicated. And this is one of those examples. So we've had, I'm not going to call it a battle or a fight, but some, we've had a debate with some of our listeners about, a certain category of bikes and their usefulness and their classification and our understanding of them. And we brought the conversation around to why don't we really consider GT bikes their own legit category? And then here comes Suzuki with a big old GT bike. And we alluded to this in Best Bike in the World this week. Swigs, tell us what we're looking at. So we're looking at the the GSX-S1000GT. True to form with Suzuki, a mouthful of well, a name. I'm, I'm sorry. No, it's the 2022 GSX-S1000GT+. Well, I assume there's a regular and a plus then. Uh, presumably. Presumably. But also, just putting plus at the end of your motorcycle name. It's a bold, like White <laughs> Castle, a bold move, right? <laughs> so, um, so there's a lot of distinct things about this, but first of all, I love the super aggressive gt branding suzuki going hey so we're kind of realizing that people weren't necessarily into that f bike the one that you apparently really like this week and also it's probably a little too close to maybe han naming conventions and all that kind of stuff and if you think about it that that jixer kind of had a bit of a honda look to it or that jixus that you know the old f bike we're not saying jixus on this ship <laughs> Okay, we're not okay. doing. <laughs> we're not going to go there. So that GSX GSXS, uh, you know, one thousand F had a bit of a Honda look to it, didn't it? It did, and I think it's something that's going to be seen as just weird because it's not. It's not specific to any era. It's its own thing. It's its own weird offshoot of a particular era. But I think that this new bike is its own thing, and it fits into the modern era. Well, it's in that it's it's insanely aggressively angular and technical. It's kind of like 
don't know. It's it's got a little bit of Yamaha like R6 R1 in it. Yeah, but it's also got like BMW style asymmetric headlights as well. It's it's got a lot going on. I personally like it because I love this category of bike. You and I both love sport tours. But this is a sport tour that specifically goes GT. Yes. Boom. And I love that. I love the bullet. And I love how starved for information the moto journalist world is that I would say three out of five headlines of people that have written articles about this bike is like, sport tours are back. And it's like, are they? Are, are, is this style of bike back? Because Suzuki traditionally not really a big, you know, I, Suzuki doesn't tend to make a huge splash with any individual model, right? They're not known for game-changing models. Mm. They, uh, well, the last one was the, the Jixxer 750, maybe? Look, I'm going to make I, a bold statement right now. And I'm going to say the difference between a sport tour and a grand tour is... I think it's I think it's in the details. I think it's in the amount of features and amenities, personally. I think that in terms of actual performance and riding style, it's a smaller difference than between a super sport and a superbike. Perhaps. I think it's a tiny difference. I think it's maybe it's what, splitting. Hairs. Want, yeah, okay, whatever. But with this bike, people are like sport tours are back. It's like, what, are we going to see a huge rush on concourses all of a sudden? Like, I don't think so. People still love their adventure bike thing. Whatever. This is just moto journalists super starved for a, for a story. But whatever. I'm glad a new Suzuki model is getting a lot of excitement. The big news about this bike is that Suzuki, true to form as always, super late to the party. With no real innovation, but hey, finally Suzuki has released a bike with a full suite of electronics accessories. We've got a TFT display, we've got traction control, we've got ride by wire throttle, we've got the the Suzuki, you know, whatever start thing where basically you just press the start button once and it just lets the starter go for like up to 10 seconds or something until it starts on its own. I don't know why people thought it was a labor to hold the start button, but what Suzuki's real proud of it. But anyway, there's that there's they call it like the instant start or something, I don't know. Um They've got... Um, Wouldn't an instant start not require it to be held down? Well, I, I think <laughs> the, I think the whole thing is you just press it and let go. And, like, you know, by the time you've got your hand, like, I don't know. It's whatever. It's the Suzuki instant start. It's whatever it is. They got the yeah. Suzuki start thing. They've got the rider modes. They've got, like, the, 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 the phone app and all the, all the stuff you've come to expect with kind of top-of-the-line touring bikes and things. Suzuki has famously just not had any kind of TFT or anything in display, any connectivity with your phone, hasn't had, you know, programmable modes for shit. Like they've been way in the dark ages on all this shit, right? So this lets us know that we're probably going to see a Jixer 1000 with all this shit in a year or two, right? Maybe never a 600, 
or 750, but like, you know, this is coming, right? The next version of the V-Strom might have this. Right? I'd be more interested in this than the V-Strom, yeah. Right. But Suzuki's finally joining this party. And and I'm sure, just like everything else with Suzuki, because you know it's not it's going to be one unified system that they share across all these different bikes. So if you're if you're thinking of retiring whatever adventure bike you have and you didn't go with the V-Strom because the electronics, I don't know, maybe go and check out one of these bikes and see if you like the electronics because I bet you it's going to be on the V-Strom in a couple years or less, right? Yeah. It's, it's not a big change. I wouldn't be surprised if they just add it to the existing version of the V-Strom without doing a bodywork update. Personally, I wouldn't change the current V-Strom either. I think it's fucking awesome. See, I look at this bike as very similar to something like the Kawasaki Z900, but it doesn't make my eyes bleed. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, it's 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 a modern, very angular, aggressive, like profile, but it doesn't have that horrendous bug headlight nacelle that makes me write it off immediately. Okay, so I need to see one in person, but. More than any other bike I've seen before it, with maybe the exception of the, uh, the, the Ninja at, um, SX, that 1000 SX. Yeah. Or, or whatever it was, just the. Oh yeah, the, the Ninja SX touring bike. Yeah. Right. It, with the exception of that, maybe the, that and this bike, maybe the only bikes I've seen that do look like you could ride them around without the bags and they don't look like naked without the bags and then they don't look awkward with the bags either yeah you know like your norge riding it around without the bags it something's just missing it looks awkward it looks off you know and the futura less so but i'm so much of these things, this bike really is properly well, no, designed the to the have Futura, the bags or not have the bags. Well, the Futura doesn't look weird in that way without the bags because you're still saying, what the fuck is that bike? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> um, the Futura does pull that trick off pretty well, but, but you know, the, you know what I'm saying? There's very yeah, yeah, few yeah. of these bikes with these, with this integrated, you know, luggage system that don't look weird without it. There's not weird shit hanging down there where it clips in yeah. and like all of a sudden it's not there. I, you know what I mean? But also the bike just looks comfortable sort of stripped down. Like I'm going to ride this around and take it in twisties. And it also looks like, oh yeah, I'm going to hit the highway and ride coast to coast. It does weirdly look equally capable for both. That really appeals to me. I, I'm curious about this bike. I want to ride one. I, between this and a Ninja, you know, SX, I, I, I could go either way in this category, you know. I mean, yeah, the Concourse is the undisputed king, but that's more leaning towards coast to coast. This might be a little bit more, uh, I don't know, I can ride it sporty well, around town and keep you know, up with even, my friends. Even if the. It's 150 the, horsepower, like it right. moves. I mean, even though the core, the Concourse is shaped 
like a sport touring motorcycle. When you talk about, when you look at the weight and the height of it, is it a sport touring motorcycle? I think it is. When you look at it on the spectrum of GT to SD. It's a whale of a sport tour, but it is. It looks like a sport tour, but if you were to talk about the how it actually feels and how you actually ride it, I feel it's it's still actually more towards the GT side than the ST side. Perhaps. Just yeah. just based on the size of it. It Yeah. Okay. So and that's where it gets a little bit deceptive. There we go. Yeah, it, it, yeah. Is, is the concourse a sports tour or a grand tour? You're right. It's probably more of a GT. You're right. You're right. But, you know, like for some reason, you had to have 12, 13, 1400 cc's to sell a, a, a GT or sport tour to old guys a while ago. We're kind of cool with one liter now. We're cool. I think we're it's cool a with 800. Well, in the, in the adventure market, we're cool with 800. Or less, yeah. It, it's a post-horsepower world. We can kind of go back to sensible numbers again. Like, I have no problem with only 150 horsepower. That, that, my, oh, you know? no. Yeah. I, <laughs> only 150. That's not a big deal for me, right? So, I mean, you know, even cars are starting to dip down in horsepower a little bit today. I was kind of shocked the other day to realize that Claire's RAV4 is only like 170-something horsepower. I was like, really? Well, I there was like a time in like, do you remember like from like 2008 to 2014? Like, like everything was over 200. Everything yeah. was just 200. Unless it was a Civic. Yeah. Every, everything was 200 or 220 horsepower, like base model mm-hmm. car. Yeah. And then we just hit this post horsepower world. I, I don't know. People we just, just stopped, stopped caring. caring yeah. yeah. So I, I mean, people still care in bikes, but not as much. Like a lot of the older crowd has realized, okay, maybe I don't need super bike horsepower and it's going to be okay. I'm not going to be embarrassed. Right. And younger people just don't care. And older people care less than they used to. So yeah, I don't know. I'm excited. I hope we see more bikes like this, but more. I'm just so happy I got vindicated on the whole GT badging and Suzuki's finally joining the world with modern electronics uh, accessories. Okay, let's talk about something um, a little bit theoretical. It's real, but it's also theoretical. Let's talk about the 2022 Europe-only Kawasaki Z650RS. Thoughts, Swigs? Uh, it looks super fucking dope. And... If this had been around when I had bought the W650, I would have bought this instead. Yeah, that would be a very, very, very sensible decision. <laughs> uh, have you uh, seen this bike, Mike? No. I have not. Uh, okay. So are you familiar with the Z900 RS? I am. I am. So it's so, you know, Kawasaki has the the Ninja 650. That 650 motor has quietly just been crushing race categories and all sorts of things all over the place for the last like five years or so. And they have taken that same platform and done the, the RS classic retro, you know, 
thing to mm. that 650 motor. So they've taken the Z650, which was a very futuristic, angry-looking Transformers bike, and they've made a sort of classic bike oh, out of it. That's the Kawasaki bike I know. Right. And I love it. So the Z900 is a bike that looks amazing in pictures, but when you see, for me, when I see one in person, the tank is so ridiculously large. It's like the mm-hmm. rest of the bike is perfect, but like this bulbous bit in the middle throws all the proportions off. And Swigs has this same thing with the, um, the XSR 900 and XSX. XSR 700. 700. Yeah. Where he thinks the 700 looks so much better just from the proportions. Yeah. And I think this same thing is going on here. Now, this is kind of a budget bike. This is not totally budget, but this is around like 8,000 pounds for the, the British market. I'm guessing we're going to be looking at eight, nine and a half thousand dollars for the US. Uh, if it's probably if it comes here, probably eighty five hundred or eight thousand. Eight thousand e- would really excite me. Well, even in modern currency, um, bikes are still just super cheap in the U.S. compared to Europe. True. It could it could absolutely be eighty five hundred or eight thousand over here. It's totally realistic. Now, what we do have to prepare ourselves for is the fit and finish is not going to be as good as it is on the Z900. They're, they're going to cheap out on a couple components. Some things that were real metal and real whatever on are going to be a little bit more plasticky on this thing than they are on the 900. We're going to have to prepare ourselves for that if this comes to the States. But I, uh, for, for, for an $8,000 price tag, I would be, I think, I think I'd be pretty happy with it. I, I love the gold wheels. I mean, first of all, let's talk about the color schemes. There's only one for this. You have to have it in green. I think the golden black is garbage. I think the red is garbage. I, it's, the red and black is garbage. It's, it's Kawasaki. It has to be. It's this a retro has Kawasaki. To be green. It has to be in the old school green. Right. And the green with the gold wheels is just killer on this. I'm not normally a sucker for these modern retro bikes. I think this is great. And I think it's great also because it kind of has retro horsepower too. The, the Z900's kind of a lot of bike. It's like a hundred horsepower or 110 or something like that. Like you don't really ride it like an old bike. I think this is like a new bike that looks like an old bike that you'll kind of ride a little bit like an old bike. Yeah. Yeah. yeah looking at it. I mean, this, this bike pays homage to a lot of things that other retro throwback bikes do not. Like that. Well, the styling is second to none. As far as how to do a retro UJM in the modern day, mm-hmm. this is the blueprint. Like Honda, take notice. I know Honda copies no one, but if they could do this with their CB line, they would crush. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, 
I mean, it's it's hard for Honda because if you look at a lot of the superficial elements, it's things that Honda has already done, but they don't match old Hondas in the way that this matches an old Kawasaki. Like, look at that right. little tail fairing. You know what? What bike in a little duck yeah. tail? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah, what what bike since the early '90s has done that? Well, even the whole thing where the radiator kind of takes the place of the double down tubes in the front mm-hmm. to really complete the profile of the frame. And we said all this about the Z900. This, this is how you do a modern retro. This is, this is, this is the closest you'll get to the UJM look in a modern bike that makes sense. Right. This is just it. And why can't, look, they all adopted the UJM look back in the sixties, seventies. Why can't we have a UJM look today? But why is that such a bad thing? Right. In video games, everyone was like, you know, for a couple of years, oh, you're just copying Mario for like side scrolling platformers. But then we just went like, well, maybe this is just like a great way to make a lot of games. Like, I, you, why can't this just be a blueprint with a lot of small variations that everyone just uses? What, what's so bad about that? Every once in a while, you get something like this that's just sort of becomes the way we do these things. But why is that so bad? Why does Honda and Yamaha have to go to ridiculous lengths to try to do something sort of like this, but definitely not do this? You know, a farmer doesn't look at the concept of a pickup truck and says, you know what, this is just so old and dated, and I can't deal with this anymore. You know why? Because it makes a lot of sense. If you need to move... 2,000 pounds of fertilizer every month, you're going to own a pickup truck. It, it's just how it is. And at the same time, if you just have a functional bike design that has lasted through the ages, why would you change it? I, I don't know if that's, a, that's really a terrible example, actually. <laughs> we but, know what you're getting but, at. But yeah, it's like why, you know, this is a design that has lasted through the ages. And yes, there is a bit of a throwback callback cultural element to it. But you know, a bike isn't old and redundant just because it's classically styled. And there's some weird merging here that, for some reason, a lot of people have a problem with. But, you know, outside of having a, outside of having an aerodynamic fairing, what are you losing with a classically styled bike? I mean, I'm not really aware of anyone that does dislike the, the, the look of the RS or the 900 RS anyway. I've not, I've not encountered a big hater. So anyway, the story here is that, yeah, we're, Kawasaki is rolling out different versions of the RS in other places and they'll probably, um, I mean, it's only a matter of time till we see a Z400 RS and all that other stuff, right? And hey, cool. I'm all for it. And, 
I, I think it embodies what the, the UJM that it's trying to represent really was all about, right? There was yeah. an old KZ400 and 650 and 750 and, and 900 and all that. Why wouldn't there be today? So there we go. Um, let's move on to another bike here and see how many we can get through. Let's talk about the Ducati Panigale V2. So is, um, well, first let's catch up. The, the Panic, not the Panigale, sorry. The Panigale V2. Um, the, um, the, the Ducati Multistrada V2. That's what I wanted to talk about. Du, 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 Multistrada V2. So the, the Multistrada was always a V twin, except remember a couple years ago, they switched it to the V4 engine, right? And, and a lot of people were excited about that, but you know, some other things happened in the news that kind of overshadowed it, right? <laughs> and, um, yeah, <laughs> the, 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 the Multistrada switched to the V4 motor kind of without a lot of fanfare. There may have been a little bit more hype about it, right? But, um, Remember probably three months ago or something, we were talking about how, why isn't there a baby Strata? You know, and I was saying, I think a baby Strata would be a pretty good move for Ducati. And you're like, eh, it's such a premium bike. That's a weird model. Uh, this is the baby Strata swigs. I am vindicated again. So are you though? Yeah, so this is the this is the 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 little this is like a nine hundred and sixty something cc version out of the like the, you know the sport one thousand oh, okay. or whatever or nine fifty mm. or whatever you hook it. This is the most recent iteration of the Testa engine in a slightly more budget and slightly middle priced V two S version of the Multistrada. So this is this is the baby Strada. It's not the, the, the 1200 or 1100, you know, V4. This is two cylinders, 200 cc's less, a little bit lighter on the wallets, but still prestigious, still feature rich Multistrada. Um, I mean, I, I'm sort of like, should they go all the way down to like an 800 or something with a Multistrada? I, my feeling is why didn't they really go baby Strata? But okay, D- Ducati's decided, hey, we've got all the parts lying around. We can just put this motor in this, you know, here we go. Um, I've honest, well, 950 is kind of enough. Oh, it's totally enough. Yeah, the 1200 V4 is so much overkill. Yeah, it makes zero sense, really. I mean, I think they're thinking, yeah, maybe this might be the more capable, but maybe the one you want to do less highway on, or so. I, I don't know. I'd I'd have to talk to a a real hardcore Ducati person to know. Well, I think the real answer is it doesn't matter because it's enough. Well, yeah. But I mean, so much of buying a Ducati is in the prestige and like getting the most expensive thing, and right? I mean, right? Yeah. 
you don't buy a Multistrada because it's the best adventure bike. You buy a Multistrada because it's the flashiest <laughs> adventure bike. But, I mean, well, let's look at... I haven't actually looked at what the price of this is. Let's find out here. I'd like to know how much it weighs. Um, this is a race to see who can find out what's going on. 113 horsepower, 9,000 RPM, 96 newton meters of torque. What is that, Swigs? That's pretty good. That's, what, high 60s foot-pounds? Mm, that's like 89, 90. Oh, really? Or more. Okay. So, okay, we're still big and torquey. I mean, the bike does look a little different. It does, like, sit in a little bit of a profile, like a little bit lower, it seems. It's almost got a sort of... It's got a little, it's got a little Tenere 700 sort of stance to it, doesn't it? Why not? The... The point to me is, are you cool dumping this bike on a trail? Oh, no. You're still not. No. No. Not at all. All right. But are you are you also less upset about dumping this in a parking lot compared to a 1200V4? Yeah. Well, a also, lot more. Also, <laughs> I, I think the Multistrada is, the, is sort of... Out in the open of being the least adventury of these things, I I mm-hmm. think this is the one that pretends to go off road the least. I think they're like, okay, you you can do some. We've got some we got some longer travel suspension for you, but this is really again a GT bike, right? And I, this one's a little lighter, a little nimble, a little easier on the wallet. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, why not, right? It, it's a little bit parts bin, but um, this has got this like super fancy electronic suspension, and a, it's it's super duper feature rich. Uh, even though it's a sort of a, a lower engine version, again, post horsepower world, right? The you know the the big engine version isn't necessarily the flashiest thing on the market. Um, I don't know. Just more thoughts of where we're going. I only have one problem with it. What's that? The way they've shortened it up on the wheelbase and brought it up a little bit taller with the beak on it, especially in the silver. It's very Sam Eagle. I was just about to say <laughs> Sam Eagle. <laughs> I'm trying to think about like what this bike would say. Uh, Easy, boys. Let's not get sloppy just because we're singing. Uh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> you know, that's just the multi-strata look. I've come to embrace it, bit, yeah. and I'm fine with it. It's <laughs> it's got the biggest beak of of all of all these bikes, and it's real proud of it. It's like we're not just gonna have a beak; we're gonna have the beak. It's gonna be like a straight up eagle's beak, and you're just gonna have to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I, you know, it's an it's an endearing feature of the multi-strata at this point, and I mean. 
this is a bike that I need to ride at some point. And like Ducati is so fucking stingy with test rides and shit that I haven't had an opportunity to get on one of these. Hey, listeners, maybe you need to write in a letter to get Ducati to force a local uh, dealership to just let us take one out for a weekend. But there we go. Okay. Um, let's see. We really need to wrap this up or maybe hit one or two more models or whatever. Let's shit it off the pot. What else do we want to talk about? Anything else? Should we? Uh, let's just finish with the Street Triple 1200RR. What do you uh, say? Okay. Let's do that. So Triumph has a new sort of exclusive bike. This is going to be like a small batch, super expensive kind of thing. It's like, what, $23,000? Is that right? I don't have the specs brought up, but I have pictures brought up. But it's the it's the Speed Triple 1200RR. So this is the so frame. 21000 21,000. Okay, so this is expensive as fuck. This is this is the this is the the 765 triple and it is what? Isn't it? Oh no, sorry, it's the 1200. Sorry. Sorry. I thought that was in the name. Sorry. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're right. Sorry. It's the 1200 triple. It's RR whatever. It's but it's basically the poor man's uh, MV Augusta Super Veloce. In fact, I have found already a picture, and Visor Down has done a spec showdown of the two, which I haven't actually looked at how the specs of these two match up, which is interesting. I wonder if they've got a thing here. So, I mean, with price, obviously, this this wins. But in styling, the MV Augusta is a, a cut above, right? Yeah, uh, well, yes, by a long way. D- the but- MV Augusta Super Veloce is so good that Phil from Cleveland Moto had to say, I was completely fucking wrong for loving the styling on this bike. And then like three weeks later, compared another bike to it and went, hmm this is actually kind of a looker it's grown on me right like he <laughs> called me out on bullshit across the internet and then went back on his word it's that good of a bike right and phil is a man of uh unwavering solid opinions generally so this is a poor man's version in terms of the styling it is cheaper and yeah, it's more displacement and it's probably more horsepower, but is it more X factor? Like the, you know, is it really more? I, 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 just because Triumph is a big manufacturer doesn't mean they can't produce a boutique bike. And I'm a sucker for a boutique bike. So part of me wants to love this speed triple. I don't give a shit that it costs too much because it does cost less than the things it's going up against. I don't. Yeah. yeah, Is it, it? The question is, 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 is the styling letting it down too much? Right. Does, I, I don't think, I think with a little bit more creativeness, 
they could have put just a little bit more wavy plastic could make this bike worth the cost. Look, right? No, no. Here, here's the problem. Look, you you cannot be you cannot be Chevrolet and Aston Martin. You cannot be Ford and Velocet. You cannot be boutique. And mass production. Oh, I take exception. You totally can. The, no, no, the, no, say no, like no. the Ford GT, right? The, the, you have to be on a waiting list for those. They make like you know, like two hundred a year. And you have to write a letter to Ford and have a history of owning Fords. And if right. you've ever owned a Corvette, they're like, no, nope, you can't buy a Ford GT, right? Yes, but, but they still exist. They're still making them every year. It's not the same thing. You cannot be, you cannot have this wistful lust for a brand that went to the verge of bankruptcy over and over again and produced this one of a kind, ridiculous thing that people developed a love for and then still exist 30 years later. You can't have both. You can't have it both ways. And I understand what they're doing here and what they're trying to capture, and I think they're doing it as best they can. Well, maybe not as best they can. I think they could do better in a lot of different ways. But you don't get to be you don't get to be Aston Martin and Volkswagen. You just can't do it. So you think Triumph needs to stick to more of like the street? The street models and the budget models, and maybe veer away from this this high end boutique stuff. Well, I think they can still do high end. I don't think they can do boutique, unless it's tied to something very specific, like the Moto Two class with the motor they're providing. I, mean, I kind of feel like this is sort of Triumphs, like you know, like the Ducati Super Legera, right? Whatever, you know, Ducati's hottest bike is, they do the super legera model where they just, you know, they, they even go to the, the, to the extreme lengths of taking off any like plastic molded badges and replacing them with stickers and all that kind of crazy stuff, right? And they do a super light race oriented version that's not even street legal and that kind of crap, right? This, this is sort of their version of doing that. And my only issue is, okay, all the performance is there, specs are there, it's got all sorts of bells. It, it, it's, it's impressive. I just don't think it looks special enough. And it kind of, it, it doesn't look any more impressive than a new katana. Yeah. That's my only thing with it. If it looked more special, I'd be into it. Which is an odd position for me to take, because I'm normally super objective about these things. But that's it's probably not, not true, actually. It's <laughs> but not a pretty bike. It doesn't have the X factor. That's what it's missing. You know what it you know what it doesn't you know what it lacks? Zazz. There's no Zazz here, right? It is Zazzless. It missed the last train to Zaz Town. Whereas the the MV Augusta Super Village uh, is nothing but Zaz, right? I, the, I, looking at the MV Augusta 
which is like clearly what it's going for. Like the MV Augusta could be like 85 horsepower and you'd be like, I, I bet it's still fun to ride. Whereas this speed triple 1200, you're like, I, I just don't, you know, I, I just don't believe it would make me feel the right way. Plus, it's got this really disconcerting little split in the back of the seat that just looks like it would bump up against your tailbone in a super uncomfortable way. Oh, I assume it's going to be uncomfortable. (laughs) It should be uncomfortable. It's true. A properly fast bike should be uncomfortable, but there we go. Does that have a purpose? I I have no idea. I I mean, maybe to make you feel more uncomfortable and therefore justify the expense of the bike. Like, this is really uncomfortable. That must mean it's expensive, right? I have to say, it's this weird mix, just the the overall, all the fairing. It's it's this weird mix of curvy and angular. And, you know, other new bikes we've talked about, they're just all angular. Like, this has a little bit of curve to it. Right, but you know, like, have have you looked at a picture of the Super Veloce? Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, mm-hmm. do you see what I mean? How with like just a little bit of extra wavy plastic, this mm-hmm. bike could be so more appealing. Right. I mean, we're talking about like another four square feet of ABS. Is, is the difference of this justifying its price or not? Right. Right. Whereas the fairing kind of looks like that weird Vetter. What was that Vetter fairing that was sort of Star Star Wars looking, where the headlights recessed inside of it? You know what I'm talking about? That Vetter bikini fairing that has like the triangles coming out in the front. You know, mm-hmm. this almost has. You know what? This also has tones of the Vetter mystery ship about it. Um, I mean, it's pointed down rather than up, but you know, there's, there's something almost Vetter mystery ship about the front of this bike. And well, you know what the Super Veloce has that this bike doesn't have? A big fuck off bold single piece plastic fairing. Yeah, that's what this bike is missing because. <sighs> Isn't that what I've just said like three times over <laughs> in different ways? A little bit, but I, I've, I mean, this is kind of a weird thing because, like, this is something you can see on like 650 budget, like, sport bikes. Is, oh, if you just break up the fairing in enough pieces or you just make a naked bike, it's fine. But just having like a single fuck off huge piece of plastic fairing. Is at this point enough to mark you as a super luxury bike? It must simply be that. Oh my god, I've got it. 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 So with this bike, Triumph is really trying to go in on the fact 
that well first of all it's you know it's a it's a speed triple so which are traditionally sort of naked style bikes although they, although they make their own rules there's no reason this couldn't have been a daytona 1200 rr right i mean the fact that it's called the speed triple 1200 rr is just is just them holding themselves to their own weird rules there's no alien overlords making them have to you know where they have to do a sort of bikini fair naked semi-naked bike right so rather than it look like a slightly more expensive fz1 with clip-ons or a weird version of like a veteran mystery ship ship that's been like melting that they could have done like a daytona 1200 rr or just call it the speed triple 1200 rr and the rr is fully fared fuck off right we make the rules the rr is fully fared but they for some reason triumph i think believes that the public is bought in to their whole street fighter philosophy and so if this bike wasn't largely naked somehow the public would reject it I think that's what's going on. I think they're believing their own hype and they're not really clued into what people might actually want. I mean, all the I don't think anybody knows what's going on at this point. I think everyone's confused and it's just a little bit of a mystery. And so, Swigs, all the proof you need is that the biggest. Uh, Triumph uh, boutique or high-end Triumph fan in the world, Yammy Noob, thinks this bike is not worth the money. Yeah, I, I guess that kind of... Well, yeah, that, that's the lower bar, so if it doesn't clear that, it kind of it kind of makes sense. Yeah, Triumph, redo the bodywork and get back to us. I, I haven't written this off completely. Give me a version two, and we'll see what happens. Okay, so we're we got to be over two hours. Let me see here. Yeah, we've just got okay. We're we're running along again. So let's let's call this one to an end. So next week we're gonna have two weeks or two rounds of MotoGP to catch up on. And who knows, maybe for fun, we'll do made up motorcycle. We're going to probably, we'll probably have some emails to do and who knows what else. So look forward to that. So this has been episode 168 reminding everyone check out the Patreon, please go send emails to contact at nokomoto podcast contact at nokomoto podcast.com for all your thoughts feelings communications with us anything you want to do except influence content because you need to be a patreon for that and or patron how did, did you say patron 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 yeah of, of course so we're would. going with i don't care otherwise you're right we don't okay all of that stuff. And then finally, we'll, we'll remind everyone to stay safe, stay tuned, keep fighting the dragon. And I know it sounds awkward, but I'm going to keep saying it. Get rid of your smartphone for a dumb phone and an iPod. Ready? And I don't want to die. 
I just want to ride on my motorcycle. Cold 